One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome to It Starts With Beer. I'm your host, Will Sis. And on this episode, I got a chance to hang out in person with founder and brewer Dana Bork and head brewer Justin Dolly of Firefly Hollow Brewing in Bristol, Connecticut. This episode is brought to you by Labyrinth Brewing Co., located in the historic district of Manchester, Connecticut. They keep a diverse selection of beer styles on tap, as well as a healthy selection of Connecticut-made hard ciders. Their tap room is open seven days a week, and you can find their cans in package stores across the state. Your journey begins here. For more information, go to www.lbc.beer. I've been a fan of Firefly Hollow since they opened in 2013, not only because of their solid lineup of beer, but because of their cozy, pub-like atmosphere in a frankly shady industrial building. We hung out outdoors on a slab of a loading dock on a gorgeous, warm Saturday afternoon. I hope you enjoy this talk, which includes a tasting of several beers, which is new for me on the podcast. I'll discuss adventures in podcast editing during the after party, so stay tuned until after the interview. Let's listen in. For those who've never been uh, to Firefly Hollow, you should really know a little bit about its history and then we're gonna bring it into the present. Dana, you've been around and involved with um, Firefly Hollow, kind of interested in pre-Firefly Hollow and how you got uh, to the place where you actually wanted to open this up as a professional brewery. Yeah, so uh, I guess my story starts um, when I was studying nutritional science at University of Connecticut. Um, I was kind of in the nutritional program, not really sure what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I enjoyed the biochemistry, the chemistry, and at the time I was kind of leaning more towards the food science aspects, and there was a part of me that kind of wanted to work in restaurant management. And it was right around that time that uh, I just had like a, it was like one of those really hot summer days where you don't know what to do with yourself other than sweat and complain. So I was poking around in my dad's basement and I found a bunch of uh, homebrewing gear. Uh, he had all the carboys, buckets, all the racking equipment and everything I needed. And next to it was a classic homebrewing book, uh, Charlie Papazian's New Complete Joy of Homebrewing. So I picked the thing up, started reading through it, and uh, I made a couple really terrible batches of homebrew at home. Um, but as I kind of progressed with it, I found that the um, a lot of the chemistry, biochemistry, and biology that I was learning about through the nutritional program at UConn tied in phenomenally with, um, with, with brewing science. Uh, so I kind of pursued it on my own for a while. Uh, dove down the rabbit hole of home brewing to a point where I was making a lot of beer at home. And then after I graduated, I started volunteering at the Thomas Hooker Brewery. Uh, and around that time, I also started working um, with my now business partner, Rich Loomis, at the um, homebrew supply shop up in East Hartford, uh, Brew and Wine Hobby. Starting in about 2011, I went through uh, the American Brewers Guild uh, Distance Learning Program, um, which tails off with an apprenticeship. Just kind of working at Hooker, working at uh, the homebrew shop, and at the same time going through this um, this like official uh, learning program with the American Brewers Guild. And after that, I basically got to a point where I started looking for brewing jobs. Um, and my business partner, my now business partner, Rich, basically said, like, hey, why don't we just do this ourselves? At the time, it wasn't uh, like everybody and their grandmother had a brewery, like it almost seems like there is now. I mean, it was probably a little bit more uncharted territory. Certainly, you had a chance to see how Thomas Hooker Brewing uh, did it up in Bloomfield, Connecticut. What were some of the biggest hurdles early on when you went to brick and mortar? You couldn't necessarily call up American Beverage Equipment and order a 10-barrel brew house. We ended up basically finding some uh, old dairy tanks that needed some rehashing. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in our brewery is kind of DIY. Um, and that's kind of like, that's definitely something that makes us unique. It's something that makes us, uh, 
that I think is kind of fun. Uh, but also from a design standpoint, it's kind of cool to be able to say you designed all your own uh, your own equipment. But yeah, I think um, a lot of the challenges just came down to the fact that um, there there wasn't nearly the same resources. There's a great community, but um, it was a different time. Justin, tell me a little bit about uh, where uh, you were, say, 10 years ago, and um, what was your path, and how did that bring you to Firefly Hollow? So my path was a little different. I went to school for uh, electrical engineering, um, and I never really enjoyed it. Um, Love the aspect of you know being a little bit more strict on your day-to-day um, work ethic of, you know, you go into work, you work at an office, you leave at 5 o'clock, and that, that's your day. Uh, you don't have to worry about anything else until the next morning. Um, and at the time, actually, when I came to, to Firefly is when they first opened up. I'm from Bristol, originally Bristol Woolkit, and uh, I kept on coming here um, repeatedly. Uh, I met Dana years before that. Uh, I homebrewed for many... About 10 or 15 years um, before, or I should say, since 2006, I've been homebrewing. And uh, I always wanted to sell my beer, start my own company. It was Dolly Brew. Um, I don't know if anybody's out there that remembers that name, but uh, my last name's Dolly. So it's, uh, I, I was always at these different events. The first time Dane and I actually met was at um, Burnside. Burnside, they had a festival. It was one of their first festivals that they. It's Old Burnside? Old Burnside. From uh, East Hartford fame? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, we, I actually brought my beer there. I, I knew the uh, dis- uh, distributor, and he's like, yeah, come come on down. At the time, I was literally one of two home brewers that were actually at the event, and I met, you know, I met Bill, I met Rich, I met Dana. Uh, Dana, young Dana at like 23. <laughs> and uh, he had a shaved head, no facial hair, so you wouldn't even recognize him from uh, pictures back then. Um, and just every after that, every single time, Firefly finally started to go to these brew fests, um, and they weren't a company still. They were they were just home brewing, and uh, it was always kind of a competitiveness in between us. I'm like, I have to have, you know, better beer or more beer or uh, just a different beer than Dana has. And uh, we have a lot of fun stories on um, different events that we went to, and uh, we go back and like it just pops in my head every once in a while. I mean, I've been working here for about five and a half years almost, yeah. and. Um, before that, I used to come here all the time saying, like, you opened a, a brewery before I did, you bastard. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and then I pr- he would come and he would, uh, and he would stir the mash in the morning before he went to work at Lowe's. <laughs> yeah. literally, literally, <laughs> literally, I would stir the mash uh, before I went to work, and throughout the day I would text him, like, how's it going, how's it going? And uh, I, I think that was um, the best, it showed me on what it takes to work at a brewery um, and have, you know, the, the backbone to come in early in the morning and uh, just work your ass off to make a, a great beer. And I think the, the, the first few years, um, a lot of people don't remember Firefly um, as much just because craft beer wasn't that big uh, in Connecticut. And um, it's fun, fun to see or fun to ask people it's, or when they say to us, um, how long have you guys been open? And we're like, seven, seven years. And they're like, seven years? You guys have been here for seven years. Wow. Yeah, we, get, we get so many people who come up and they're like, Firefly, hello. Oh, you must be new. It's like, <laughs> actually. But well, you're constantly the, reinventing yourselves, right? So, yeah, yeah, but yeah. still, yeah, you, you've got you've got a history of um, experimentation. You have the, exper- the history of making mistakes and fixing them. So, yeah, you're not just out of the blue kind of thing. Um, what kind of... Um, reputation did you think you were gonna have in terms of oh Firefly Holler they're the ones that blank versus what you think you have now or does that line up Um, so I think when we first opened the the industry has changed phenomenally so we were I don't know like we were within the first dozen breweries that were really open in the state of memory so we were like 11 or 12 13 12 something like that so there were a lot of breweries around and if I think back to what I wanted at the time what I wanted people to think of us as was this small hole-in-the-wall brewery in the back of this weird industrial building that was kind of a strange place to go to but when you got in there they just had the best beer around that's what I wanted. And nowadays, um, I can, I'm can. i very confident that we have, um, we're making a much higher quality beer now than we were when we first opened. I have no problem saying or admitting that. Um, 
uh, Justin's thinking. It's because yeah, I, I, you know. I was just going to say, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, so I mean, we, we've had a lot. We've had a lot of uh, a lot of quality improvements, but we also are in a point now where we're distributing a lot more of our product. And at this point, when I think about who who I what I want Firefly to be, I would love for us to be a premier Connecticut brewery that you can get on a package store shelf and and bring to your family barbecue and, and enjoy it. Oh, I was—I was gonna say um, the one thing that I always like uh, about this particular com- our, our company is um, that we make a lot of different styles. Uh, we do make, you know, the hazy New England IPAs, um, which is kind of new for us for the last, you know, four years. I mean, sounds funny in the last four years it's new, but uh, we do make traditional styles. Um, but when we make the styles, we try to do it as as true to that style um, compared to some other companies uh, and. The good thing about us is if um, you have our beer, um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be within that, you know, BJCP uh, guideline. So it's, it, we tried, we do go off um, and do other things, but it's, we try to make that, those styles as traditional. Because that really comes down to a couple of philosophies about brewing. Some people, especially newer brewers, I would say, say the rules were there to be broken. You know, I'm going to be making a beer that you can't categorize. Why do you think it is that you have uh, um, gone into that direction so that you say, I really want this to be to the numbers. I want this to be something that you can say this falls within that category. Was there something in your development where you say that's important to you? Why did you? Why do you put a value on that? Uh, so f- for me, um, I have always, and to this day, I would say that most of my favorite beers, um, and this is not a knock to American beer at all, but most of my favorite beers are continental European, German style lagers, um, Belgian styles, um, and a lot of those, a lot of those phenomenal imports. I mean, Weinstefaner, you're, you're just going to be hard pressed to find a better beer. Schneiderweiss is one of the best Hefeweizens, Franz Skanner, one of the best Hefeweizens in the world. And these are beers that are classically well balanced and easy to drink. And delicious and so when I fell in love with beer those that's what I was drinking um, and when I wanted to bring the beer experience to other people I wanted that to be a part of our flavor profile I wanted um, classically balanced traditionally brewed beers with the occasional experimental twist and so that for for me and for us and I think um, I think Justin had a similar experience when you kind of getting into beer but I think that a lot of my own uh, philosophies about what beer tastes good um, has trickled through a lot of um, the company, as, as it really should. Uh, and that's not to say that a lot of the new avant-garde styles um, don't have merit. It's just that when I think about developing beer recipes, putting beers together, I think about balance, I think about complexity, um, drinkability of the product. Um, and something that, frankly, uh, there's something that I like to, to call the leader test, where if you can drink a beer by a liter and maybe want a second one, then it's probably a damn good beer. Uh, so it's funny, every time like spring rolls around and we start rolling out the Pilsners and the light beers, we'll take a sip of it and we're like, yeah, that's that's leader worthy. <laughs> I love it. I mean, yeah, you're right. Because so much of going to a brewery for some people is about the hunt. You know, it's I gotta try anything that I've never had before, um, or I gotta try this style that I know I love and only that. Um, as opposed to say what you're saying is go back to that classic one I mean you have a few beers that have been on the roster for quite a while Um, uh, I was gonna say Lizard Breath has been a staple Uh, Toadstool Stout is one that I've been I feel like I've been if anybody ever asks me you know about styles I like so first of all I'm a malt head and so my two go-to's are Back East Porter and Fireflies um, Toadstool Stout, and you know, it, it, so so you're not like chasing the dragon's tail or whatever, trying to make the new thing. But about four years ago, there was a steady monthly explosion of new breweries. Where we're at 118, 119. I don't know. Since we've been talking, another one has probably opened up. You know, what impact, if any, has that? made on the way that you guys do business or um, prepare recipes? Um, so that is a, that's a really great point. Um, the, the explosion of craft breweries in Connecticut um, has definitely put pressure on our beer portfolio. 
Um, we don't make just classic styles anymore. We kind of did when we opened. I think we were pretty much just doing classic um, classic styles, but we have definitely started to make more of the new like avant-garde um, styles of beer. Like we have New England IPAs. We have Glow is a beer that we make for 12 packs and 16 ounces. Um, Lit is a, a newer um, double New England IPA that's like super hazy. It's brewed with Mosaic, Citra, and Eldorado, and it's got like a really uh, big like mango, orange, juniper hop impression without much bitterness. Um, and we have some other stuff on the roster for 2021 that'll involve some fruit purees and, and more of like the sweeter um, the sweeter dessert beer like directions. Now the tough question is, is this something that you enjoy drinking or is this something that you enjoy people buying? Or is there a cross, <laughs> or is there like a Venn diagram crossover there? So, I mean, before uh, before Dana says anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you his lawyer too? Okay, just checking. Now hold back. Let me. T- uh, no, I, I think um, I think uh, all the beer that we make, um, and no matter what, if it's a milkshake IPA to a a lactose um, beer, or even something that is something that we normally wouldn't, I normally wouldn't drink every single day. Um, the key is to make it drinkable, right? So, and Firefly isn't a company that is gonna gonna make a um, a beer that doesn't taste like beer. So, um, as far as I know, right? <laughs> and <laughs> so, the thing is, even if it's a, a beer that we normally wouldn't drink day to day, we're gonna make that beer as as balanced as possible. And uh, if it's gonna be uh, like. One of our most successful beers this summer uh, was our strawberry creamer, and uh, we we used, I mean, gallons upon gallons of pure, uh, uh, strawberry puree and a good amount of lactose. It's not a beer that I would drink, you know, a six pack or you know, a twelve pack, uh, but or a liter. <laughs> or a liter. I mean, uh, it depends on how hot that day is. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 balanced enough that you could still taste the beer, but uh, you know it's it's strawberry and vanilla forward. You know what I mean? It's interesting that you mentioned balance because that's a word that I think has fallen out of favor. Some of the beers that are the most popular beers are absolutely imbalanced, in the sense that. For example, an imperial Russian stout. Uh, it, it is not about being a little bit of anything. It's all about being that bold malt. Uh, a lot of the um, fruity New England style IPAs are really all about that sweetness. It's not trying to balance with bitter, not trying to balance with, with other elements of beer. Is that something that you've kind of had to learn to um, adapt to or was that is that something and this comes from a non-brewer's perspective is that something already in your wheelhouse and you go oh yeah we can just make that shift and make that happen you know is that in other words was there a lot of experimentation to get to something so imbalanced like a like a really great jazz pianist suddenly having to play with only one hand or something like that you know was it was it uh, a graceful uh, transition or was that something that was difficult so uh, first I want to say I appreciate Justin's perspective there because we do try to make any of the beers that we make and put out to the public are going to be beers that um, either of us will drink and have a pint of. Um, and that's important to us. And this ties into the idea of um, kind of what you're talking about is throwing throwing the idea of balance out the window. I think with the way, if you watch the types of beers that have been really popular in the past three, four, five years, uh, even beyond that, I mean, we can go back to 2010 when people were drinking Hop Stupid. Uh, you know, beer. There was a race for a thousand IBUs, basically. So this is nothing new, but there is a uh, a tendency for beer drinkers, I think especially newer beer drinkers, to gravitate towards flavor intensity um, rather than necessarily balance or. Uh, anything else. It's just if you can get any kind of really intense, strong flavor, that's going to sell really well. For us, I think we, I've definitely, thinking about some of the recipes we've made in the past few months, there is a little bit of myself where, so when I approach these sorts of things, I think like, okay, well, we're going to make this product, maybe it's a maybe it's a milkshake IPA or it's a beer that contains a lot of like fruit puree or lactose or other adjunct ingredients. And there's a, there's a period of time where I would say like, okay, how do I take that and how do I balance it in a way where like, you know, for strawberry creamer, you get some strawberry, it's creamy, it's full, but it's not so sickly sweet that you don't want to finish a full glass of it. 
more recently, we've been having some conversations about, you know, maybe that's not important. So when I think about those things, I keep that in mind. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, that's what I would do. Let's just kick it up an extra notch because the, the Dana standard for, for like lactose and, and extra ingredients is a bit lower than what most people uh, consider um, like the, the top end. Well, can I tell you my pumpkin creamer story? Yes. Oh, uh, yes. I had the pumpkin creamer. Yeah. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> and you better believe I should have read that <laughs> can more carefully because I was doubled over in pain and joy because it tasted so good. Yet my gas level internally was way off the charts. So I guess that, that I appreciate the fact that you know, there are some of us from the uh, old guard that are older guard, I don't know, that, that um, are used to that balance, but are, you know, open-minded, you know, to, to more intense flavors. And I kind of like that idea because, you know, say I was coming into beer for the first time, I would want to know where the, where the uh, extremes are as well, because you're refining your palate, you're figuring out what you like, what you don't like, um, and you. Hopefully, you guys might be the ones that will say, "Well, yes, okay, you came for the peanut butter puree, unicorn, whatever." To uh, this is what's called a pilsner. You know, it's it's got a malt backbone, and it's also got a little bit of you know noble hops involved. You know, this is also a beer. You know, um, and I I. I think it's fantastic that there's a whole new wave of people that I absolutely cannot identify with. However, I do know that eventually we'll be speaking the same language in the sense that we love beer. What I call beer might be different than what, what they call beer. Um, and you guys are shaping that too. So that's a big responsibility, no pressure. Yeah, and if I could add to, add to that, I think um, there's... I think there's a lot of conversations that happen in the craft beer community where people drinking beer will and this is a weird perspective to me, will look down on other people for their beer preferences. And I just want to add that I think, like, it's whatever you're choosing to drink is absolutely fantastic. Like, we're just happy you're out here having fun. Um, and I would encourage everybody to, to, A, try new things. So if you haven't had a milkshake IPA and you're somebody who's more like myself and drinks more traditionally, go for it and try ones so that you can relate to the people who are drinking those things. And I would also flip the, the coin to the other side and say the heavy IPA drinkers, go out and try a Pilsner. Um, because uh, beer is a, it's a great thing. It's a huge universe. It's got a lot of history. <laughs> Leaf falls on Will's head. Uh, it's got a lot of history, and I think it's... Um, don't make anybody feel bad or weird about the beers that they're drinking, um, and and just enjoy each other's company and enjoy the community. I mean, if you want to have a Paps, have a Paps. Like we're not we're not gonna <laughs> yeah, that too. Like if you want to have you know the the haziest IPA, have the haziest IPA. But just know that don't judge your friend if they're they're drinking a Pilsner that you don't like Pilsners. You know, it's. Well, how will I know my dominance if I don't put <laughs> other people down? I'm confused. No, you're absolutely right. I, when I came up with the. Uh, the moniker of beer snob for my newspaper column. It was absolutely in jest because how could you be a beer snob? It's it's beer, right? But of course now, you know, I maybe am a little bit more, but certainly there are people who are. So yeah, stop doing that, everybody. You know, let, let them drink absolutely. what they want to drink. As long as it's not seltzer. Wait, oh wait, I don't know how you guys feel about seltzer. Is that beer? Seltzer is beer. Hard seltzer oh, is beer. Oh, we love seltzer without alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, tell me a little bit about the, and this might be hard to admit, but what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made along the way or learning opportunities that have helped shape what Firefly Hollow is today? Um, for me personally, it took, it took a lot of work for me to get past that point of myself that wanted Firefly to identify almost strictly as a traditionalist brewery. We waited too long, I think. It took me longer than it should have to realize that um, hazy IPAs are fine, you know? <laughs> like, it's, it, 
the, the haze craze started in what, like 2015? And I was like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. You're going to have to drive me kicking and screaming to the hazy IPA. He thinks it's 2015, but it was really like 2000, <laughs> was just, 2013 yeah, or 2012. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I think um, the, the, biggest, the biggest mistake that I think that I made was really just ignoring what the market wanted for a period of time. And now I'm, I just, like I said before, I'm a lot more open to um, uh, a lot of the new avant-garde sort of styles. We're gonna be making a bunch of them, and frankly, we're excited about it. And you kind of touched on this when you're talking about the idea of being a beer snob. It's often a very good idea when you're in this industry to remind yourself that you're in the beer industry. You, you're, you're just making beer. Like, yes, it's serious, and you, you're running a business, and and you know you want to make the best beer that you can. But at the end of the day, you're still. You're still making beer, you know. So enjoy to make it. People happy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the the goal at the end of the day, every time we brew beer, is to make people happy. And if the new thing is something that we don't make, but we have an idea, a very good idea, on how to make it, let's perfect it the way that we would brew any any type of beer. Well, th- th- so this comes from a non-brewer's perspective too, that you can help me out with. Is it easier to make a hazy IPA than it is to make a traditional IPA, or is it more difficult or I mean, it's subjective, I guess. Yeah, I think that depends on the perspective of the person making it. Um, For me personally, um, I love bitterness. I love um, IPAs with bitter, crystal clarity, a hot flavor and aroma. And so when I was trying to first wrap my head around the idea of like, okay, I got to unlearn everything that I knew about making India Pale Ale, we did a lot of trial runs to try to get the haze to stick into these beers. And so for me personally, making the learning curve to getting to making the hazy IPA was a lot harder than it was to make uh, like more of a classic American IPA like Lizard's Breath is. Um, but you may find somebody else who has who isn't as familiar with, let's say, like Sierra Nevada Celebration is a great example of a, a classic American IPA. If they're not familiar with that style in the same way, they might look at you and say, like, you add hops to the boil? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? So, yeah, I, I think that's a subjective question. It's not terribly much different. We're going to take a little break, and we come back, we're going to be talking uh, while drinking. So, uh, hang on. All right, so I made it to the tasting section of this uh, interview, which is going to be, frankly, my favorite part, because <laughs> these guys are nice and all, but they aren't beer, and I can't drink them. Let me take a look at some of these beers. The, um, from left to right, I love to hear about what I'm looking at. The first one, I'm getting kind of an amber tinge. What yep. is this first beer? That's a uh, Red Lantern. That's our Irish Red. So um, uh, we... Tell me about- uh, tell me about the beer while I try it. All right. So our, our Red Lantern Irish Red is um, uh, one of the oldest beers that we actually had at the brewery. Malty, more malty than bitter, um, but still still floral, still fruity, um, and it's just a, a nice everyday beer. Uh, it is. It's very, uh, it, it's not overly, it's just perfectly malty, which I miss so much. What's your philosophy in terms of... Um, setting up tastings, by the way, because I've got a theory about the way I'd like to do them, but I'd like to hear yours before I uh, uh, infect your ideas. Yeah, so like, what's our philosophy for why we put these beers in front of you? In order. What what do you think about order? What do you like in terms of the first beer to try, next beer, that kind of thing? Uh, I, I think for me, you... So I look at flavor intensity usually and kind of start on the lower end of the, the spectrum. Um, malty, sweeter, working your way up through maybe some bitterness or some bigger malt flavors, higher alcohol beers, leaving the really sticky, hoppy stuff for last. You can drink them however you want. They're you all can. The same place. It's true. I've even been known around 2 or 2.30 in the morning starting to just pour some on top of the other. And I'm going <laughs> to... So, I know. I, again, and I, and I consider that to be proper. Um, so, yes, Red Lantern, perfect one to start off with. Wonderful malty um, experience. Why, why do you think this one made it onto the roster so early on, and why do you think you still have it on? So, uh, Red Lantern was... Man, that was probably like the fourth or fifth beer that we made here. It came on in late 2013, not far after we opened, not long after we opened. Um, and it was right out of the gate, it was a crowd favorite. And I think there's there's a difference between um, beers that people chase 
and beers that people like to sit down and drink in a pub atmosphere. And while we have a lot of people coming through, like it's kind of like beer tourists, checking things out, seeing what's new, we also have a lot of regulars and local customers who want those classic pub beers where they can sit down and they say, I know what that is, I know I love it, it's my favorite, I'll take three. You know? And the thing is, if you haven't been to Firefly Hollow, one of the things I really fell in love with it early on was their indoors. We're outdoors now on a loading dock, but indoors there are these really comfy couches and it has an English pub style feel to it. And so this one, it almost has that, you know, you it, it brings you right to that place. So if I had this at home, I would sit in a mildly comfortable chair. I would have mildly interesting people around me, but they would not be the same as Firefly Hollow. But it would, it would kind of feel like you're there. I'm ready to just try a little bit of each one. So yeah, tell me, what, what about this next one? So I, I don't where know would, what... Where would you recommend I go? Let's go, to the, let's go to the Pilsner next. Yeah, so Pilsner. Um, we stage up. This is our Vodnik Czech-style Pilsner. Um, the Czech-style is, it's got kind of a firm bitterness to it. It's got like kind of a crackery, lightly grainy malt impression, and then a very distinct wallop of Czech Saz hops, which come across as herbaceous, a little bit minty, almost like a little bit of a sage or a tine note. Um, and this beer is all about being really easy to drink, very approachable, um, while delivering complexity in tiny packages, if that makes sense. What's the derivation of the name? Um, so we, when we were kind of thinking about how we wanted to jump in to start making lagers, one of, um, one of the, the fellows who's in the ownership structure of Firefly Hollow is um, a Czech fella. And I love Czech beers. I think Pilsner Urkel is fantastic. And I like their kind of distinct brewing lager style. And frankly, I like the Czech um, yeast strain. So we said, hey, let's let's work with that. And then I don't really remember how the name got brought up, but it might have even been Peter's idea. Like, hey, there's this, Vodnik is like a Czech water demon, yeah, essentially, yeah. who like is known for pulling people into the water who he doesn't like and drowning them. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit macabre, but we, we were thinking about that. It's like, how cool is it if you had the idea of this Czech water spirit and you just kind of like paid him off with some beer, you know? Um, so that's kind of the story behind Vodnik. Love it. You know, while we're talking about origins of names, I don't think, if you've told me seven years ago, I don't know if I remember, but um, what's the origin of Firefly Hollow again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the origin of Firefly Hollow Brewing. Um, this would have been probably 2008. Um, I was flying through the foothills of the Himalayas in a biplane. <laughs> Um, this sounds so fake. Anyway. <laughs> no, I was there. I could, I could back him up. I was, uh, I was parachuting at the same time. That also yeah. sounds fake. <laughs> but continue. I like it. Yeah, so actually, um, I, uh, I hit a seagull, um, and it, it went through the engine turbine. I ended up going down um, in a very cold area where you wouldn't expect there to be fireflies at all. Um, and then uh, I was fortunate that the natives found my wreck, and... Um, they told me that if this ever happens to me again, I just follow the, the light of the firefly back home. Let's move on. What, where do we go from here? Uh, maybe we cruise into Photon. Fo uh, Photon Imperial, this is an Imperial Red Ale. It's 9% uh, nine, 9 alcohol. 9%. Um, we haven't made this in three or four years. It was the first Imperial style that we made here. Um, we were feeling kind of nostalgic with, um, with COVID coming around, and so we said, hey, let's bring back one of these recipes we haven't made in a while. Um, there's a lot of people who ask about this beer relatively frequently, and we said, hey, let's, let's go for it. Let's do something um, kind of classically us. So we put this together. Um, the beer itself, like I said, it's an imperial red ale, so when you hold it up to the light, it's got this kind of deep ruby crimson color to it. And we use a, a blend of both um, toasted and caramelized malts. And to me, the, the net impression here, uh, and there's also a little bit of um, some Mount Hood American hops. Or do we use tet tetanang on this? Tetanang is here, which is a, a European noble hop known for having like kind of a peppery impression. So to me, when I taste this, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but it, it comes across with like some caramel, some toast, some, some spice, that to me is reminiscent of like fresh pumpernickel bread. So my impression of this is that it has a lovely mouthfeel as part of it. It's kind of a sticky, resinous kind of mouthfeel. And I'm actually surprised by 
the, the hints of fruitiness in it because it certainly is a high impact, a high, um, uh, high alcohol uh, malty beer. So in, in a sense, even though it is so malty, there is that balance that I assume is coming from the hops. Um, yes. Even though they're noble hops, they're not, it's not known for its, um, it's not known for its uh, tropicalia. Uh, so there's just a little hint of that, I would say, almost in the, you know, in the citrus family. Um, this is one of the kind of beers that I would love to drink in a snifter glass so that it would warm up and kind of tell a story, you know, from, from first to, to, to last. There is also a hop blend in here called CTZ, it's Columbus Tomahawk Zeus. Um, that's contributing to some of that citrus flavor. But also, um, what's really cool about this beer to me is that there is some fruit impressions from the hops, but you also get those dried fruit impressions from some of the dark caramelized malts. So there's like this really cool flavor tie of like citrus kind of slamming into dried fruit, and it's hard to define the line between the two. And to me, that's like, that's the fun complexity for beer is having these flavors that are intermingling. You kind of get layers that are presenting as you drink and as the beer sits on your palate and evolves. And uh, a beer like this just, it, like you said, it tells a story. There's a wine kind of um, element to this as well, because it's not grape, grape juice, but it certainly it has a little bit, almost like a, a Merlot kind of element to yeah, it. Yeah, you know. yeah. The great thing about this, this beer that I enjoy, and a lot of the high ABV beers that we make, um, we try to make it drinkable. We, we don't try to hit you with that, you know, that ethanol, super high, you know it's high alcohol beer. Um, you know it's a high alcohol beer. This, with this particular beer, it's, it's just smooth. What's next? All right, so I think um, probably the the easiest thing to drink besides the, the, the next few is uh, going to be Tempo. That's uh, Tempo is a New England IPA of uh, it's one of my recipes. Um, it's a very easy base malt. Um, it's a mostly all two row, actually a little Munich and uh, Carafone, and um, the hops are. It's 95% Nelson and uh, about 5% Topaz. I really enjoy um, having lower alphas on the New England IPAs, um, late additions obviously, but still having, uh, you know, at the end of the boil, some hop additions just to keep that bitterness. It's, it's tropical, it's fruity, uh, but it's not overwhelming. And like I said before, it's a beer that you could have one, you could have another one, you could have another one, and it's not going to kill you. At 6.6, it's very easy to drink. I was just going to ask about that. Yeah, cloudy for sure. And yeah, I'm definitely getting a uh, kind of a grapefruit kind of uh, on the gums, if that m means anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not an overpowering thing, but it's almost like in the, um, in the finish. What I like about it for sure is that it is, it, it's, not, it's not like overly soupy and sweet and cloying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to add that I think when we think about New England IPAs, Typically, we often neglect the finer points of balance, which we've discussed earlier in this podcast. A lot of times, we're just talking about hop flavor and, in, and intensity, and we fail to acknowledge the importance of the other elements of beers like this. And the reason that I like that one so much is because it's dry, it's not sweet, which means that its hops can present in a way that doesn't fatigue my palate as much. We'll get to Lit in a minute, which is much more full-bodied, um, a little bit hazier, and it's a double IPA, but um, in terms of like the sweetness balance, this doesn't have necessarily a lot more bitterness than other New England IPAs, but it doesn't really have the sugar content going into the finish, so it's, it's a little more refreshing on the palate. It lets those um, sharper fruit flavors, so like your grapefruits and your white grape, um, almost like your acidic fruits, that really allows that to kind of punch through a little bit. And I just find that things like carbonation, dryness on the palate for New England IPAs can be drivers for the way that these beers are, like you guys were talking about, it's not really a session, but it's a little more quaffable, a little more drinkable, and a little more approachable um, as something you're going to have maybe maybe two, maybe three of. All right, so where do you one, go from here? Yeah, let's go, uh, this is um, an IPA we just started making earlier this year. Um, it's called Lit, it's a double New England IPA, um, hopped with Citra, Mosaic, and Eldorado. Let's start with the uh, visual on this, um, even even denser uh, than, than the last one. Yeah, it's, it's quite cloudy, quite hazy, um, and it's, it 
it almost has like a, a creamy look to it, and that comes through in uh, the body as well. Um, you're gonna find, I think, and I don't want to put uh, thoughts in your head, but this is it. It's got a lot of hop flavor. It's got a lot of chewy body. It's got a lot of hop flavor. It's got a lot of chewy body. Oh, oh I feel like you put that in my head. So, what a yes. I'm getting orange or tangerine, maybe if to be more specific. It's getting getting in the back of my uh, uh, the top of my uh, roof of the mouth. For some reason, I feel like that's important to say. It definitely. Uh, I am enjoying the the. Um, the fizziness. I'm enjoying the, the higher carbonation. I think that's important. Uh, I think the higher carbonation levels are important with these beers because it's, you know, we've been talking a lot about balance today and I find that you, you don't want to overlook. Carbonation is maybe a more subtle um, balance uh, effector here, but if you have a beer like Lit, which is a full-bodied and sweeter beer with strong hot flavors, um, what I find is that it has a tendency to coat the palate. Um, it's a very coating beer, um, and that can be perceived as like kind of almost a cloying sweetness. What the higher level of carbonation does is it helps to cleanse some of those flavors off your palate. So when you're drinking it, you know, it, you don't have quite so much hop flavor lingering in the aftertaste. It's plenty there, but the, the carbonation is just like a little bit of a, a kind of a cleansing effect. For me, this beer is tangerine, mango, and a little bit of juniper. And you could say that that juniper tone that I pick up kind of goes into that dank direction a little bit, um, but to me it's more fruit. So we've been making our way through a lot of uh, beer in the sense that it's gone from malty to um, pilsnery, uh, crackery, biscuity, whatever you want to say. Uh, we, we started off with a red, and now we're definitely deep, deep into hop territory. Is there anywhere to go from here, or have I hit the end? Well, I mean, we're going to hit the, uh, the the Firefly Classic Double IPA, which is Coneflakes. If you haven't heard of it, well, that's okay, because I have a worldwide audience. So if you haven't heard of it, this is uh, one that um, Firefly Hollow is very well known for. We've been making Coneflakes for, it's got to be... It's got to be six years we've been making Conflicts. We started in 20, years, 2014. Yeah, yeah. It was one of our premier double IPAs. Um, this is made more in that West Coast kind of style, if, if you can categorize it as West Coast. And what I mean by that is this beer has a sturdy bitterness behind it. It has malt flavor, so you're going to get some... You're gonna get some toasty, malty, kind of lightly caramelized flavors from a blend of pale malt and Vienna malt that we use. And it is hammered throughout the boil, which brings layers of hop flavor in addition to, um, like I said before, a sturdy, hefty bitterness. I think it's, I, I think in my mind, um, Cornflakes, at least, is very eclectic, meaning that it's, you take the West Coast, you take the East Coast, and you kind of blend it together. Um, I always saw it as, it wasn't 100% West Coast. Um, that's no. my own opinion. And So it's kind of like a, uh, you know, a uh, Tupac puffy kind of thing, where you can bring them together? It's, it's in between, because I, I, I think um, we, I have a lot of friends and a lot of uh, relatives that like those hazy IPAs more than anything else, but they'll still drink this beer because... Even though it's bitter, it's it's still super resiny, super juicy, uh, in a way that it brings you back to what you used to drink when you're you know in your mid twenties. Can I throw Sierra Nevada into the mix? I mean, yeah, it certainly absolutely. seems like it was an influence, you know, and yeah. that's a compliment. Yeah, it, it absolutely was. I mean, when we were when I was thinking about Coneflakes, I wanted to. This was made. I want to say that I developed this recipe probably at the tail end of the IBU, um, you know, race to the top. So um, I wanted to make a beer that used a lot of new age hops, um, had a, a, a really... Uh, I got to pause you on there. Yeah. What does new age hop mean? Uh, there's, okay, so um, hop varieties are being developed all the time. And so like different hop varieties are being bred and crossbred and then, you know, the offspring are being bred and crossbred. And you like dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of like yeah, dogs. Seriously. So you end up with like, in the way that a German Shepherd doesn't look like a Siberian Husky, you end up with hops that express very different flavors and aromas that can be also influenced by where they're grown and how they're grown. So um, I, I personally would say a new age hop is probably anything, this is my personal de definition, don't look for it, anything developed after 2010. So it's like Simcoe, Citra, um, Matoika, Galaxy, Nelson Sauvin, Mosaic, Citra, all, much, all of these. Pretty much everything that everybody likes right now. Most of the hops <laughs> that have been bred and selected for strong fruit 
and I'm doing air quotes on this, juicy flavors. Gotcha. So, so this, uh, this was a, an influence on this as well, even though the style is older than that. Yes, yeah, for sure. So you're bringing the new and the old school together, East Coast, West Coast. In other words, this beer could change the world. It absolutely could. And if you want to talk about flavor intensity, the same way that we're talking about flavor intensity with New England IPAs, this is a very strong, very bold flavor profile. The, the thing you'll find that's different about it is, and the one that you have there is, is perfectly crystal clear. When we first package cornflakes, it typically has a slight haze to it, which falls out over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, it's, you know, this is a beer that just is is completely loaded with hot flavor from top to bottom. And so, you know, there's, like I said, we're talking about flavor intensity. This is just a different type of intensity. And the hot bitterness and the hot flavors, they're, they just kind of express differently in, if we compare Lit and Coneflakes. Both very good beers, um, but very different. And it's kind of, sh it's funny to, you're like gazing into the past 10 years when you drink Coneflakes because that's like, the, the beer drinker's beer of eight years ago, you know? I like that. I think that um, beer does that, if I might get philosophical. I think that when you drink the um, Red Lantern, yes. okay. yep. Red Lantern, you get the feeling that you're in a cozy pub, or specifically for me, it's, you know, 2014 maybe, and I'm, you know, hanging out at, at Firefly Hollow. Um, and for a whole generation of, of drinkers, they're going to be experiencing these New England IPAs in 10 years and saying, oh man, that was such a 2018, 2020 experience for me. You know, it's hard to believe, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's nice to think that that's gonna happen. And for people who are in their 60s or 70s now, there are certain beers that bring them straight back, you know. So what you're doing is more than just giving them an experience right now of immediacy. You're actually giving them some time travel. Yeah. And so nice job with that. Thank you. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a little bit about how you guys are dealing. Uh, it's COVID still. How has that impacted your business and how has it impacted your approach to um, making beer, anything like that? So we've really had to pivot. Uh, we weren't open from the months of late March through early August. Um, what's that, about six months, five, six months, that yeah. the tap room was not open at all? Um, uh, yeah. we, we were doing takeout, so we were selling cans direct to the, directly to the consumer. But um, the, the, our tap room is a major part of our revenue stream. Um, so when all of this started to go down, we thought about really what do we need to do to start to get product out in a bigger way um, so that we can sustain ourselves through um, kind of our wholesale game. And we've been very successful with it. Um, we've A big part of that was changing up a lot of our visual branding to be a little bit more cohesive. Um, so when you look at our brand on a shelf, you can see, bam, that, that's Firefly's block right there. Those are four Firefly beers next to each other. The one thing that I, I did see that we kind of pivoted at the same time is we started making old, uh, our, the, the beers that our regulars liked uh, a lot more, and we, we saw the value in that. Like, a Red Lantern's a, a perfect um, um, example of, we would never normally can that, but our regulars just kept on coming in and asking for it, asking for it, asking for it. And through this time, um, we've done beers that we normally wouldn't can that, that sold very well. It's hard, like, I think any business right now, um, but it's, um, we're, we're trying to plug through. My thanks to Dana and Justin of Firefly Hollow. You can follow them on Instagram at Firefly Hollow Brewing and Twitter at Firefly Brewing or just go to FireflyHollowBrewing.com. Hey, welcome to the after party. Pull up a portable waterbed and have another beer. I'm enjoying a Firefly Hollow Toadstool Stout. It's an oatmeal stout. It's on nitro from the can, and this time I figured out how to do it right. You gotta shake it three times, wait five seconds, pop the top. And it's nice, it's 5% uh, ABV, it's uh, definitely uh, chocolatey, 
It's um, it's uh, smooth and uh, certainly certainly drinkable, perfect for this time of year, I would say for sure. If it uh, does indeed get a little cooler, uh, but yeah, wonderful uh, with food for sure. But I'm having it all by itself because I've got a little moment to myself. Hey, let's work on a podcast. I had a lot of fun with this one, question mark. Uh, the editing was a challenge, though. I mean, okay, I, I had fun exclamation point when I was hanging out uh, with Dana and Justin, but um, <laughs> so this really put me, you know, to the task. If, if you heard any quirks about this one, if the volume got wonky, um, I apologize. I... I got this really cool thing with my recorder that I didn't use, which is this, um, looks like a rat carcass that you put on top of it, and it's supposed to cut down on any wind noise. Well, I didn't put one on because in previewing it, I didn't hear any issues, but boy, did I hear it when I got home. So what did I do? I played around in Audacity. So this is a software program that uh, Al Haida uh, turned me on to. Uh, he's the guy behind the I Know Nothing About Beer podcast. Anyway, I'm really glad he got me into this. I played with some effects. I fixed some of the wind. And I, there are other parts I just had to cut out completely. So a lot of editing for this one. Not complaining. Happy to do it. Happy to do it again. Um, things are going better here. I'm tired from my day job for sure, but uh, happy to see my wife and daughter and dog every day I come home. That makes life so wonderful. Uh, she's crawling very quickly and uh, trying to stand on everything, gibbering almost to the point of words. I don't know, thought I heard Dada a couple of times, probably just wishful thinking. I'm psyched for some upcoming episodes. I've got Tony Russo of Beer with Strangers podcast. I've got beer writer Tara Nuren, who's been published in Forbes, among other publications. And uh, my second international guest. Well, maybe third. Um, I've spoken with... um, uh, the uh, Irish beer snob and Mrs. Irish beer snob from Ireland. And next I'll be talking with Lucy Korn. She writes and edits beer articles in South Africa. I've never called Africa before. I'm very excited about this. She's also known as the brew mistress. So thanks for listening. Uh, Please help me promote It Starts With Beer podcast. Recommend it to others, share links, follow and subscribe, and rate me highly, please. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, you can give me an email, uh, send me an email to beer.snob at yahoo.com. Until next time, sip well. One, two, three, four.